Welcome everyone to another week of One of 200, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. Uh, I am your co-host, Branko Marcetic, uh, and I'm here with my two other co-hosts, uh, Paul Culland. Paul, how are you going? G'day, going well, thanks. And Philip Nasted. How, how are you going, Paul? Good, good. Still here. It's good to have you back, Branko. Good to see well, you still. Yes, yeah, it's good. Good to be back after a little little hiatus. Uh, it's it's nice to be back in the swing of things. Uh, and and, and uh, you know, turning my gaze from the horrible dysfunction of the American political system to the run of the mill, uh, do nothing dysfunction <laughs> of the New Zealand political system. Uh, it's it's great to <laughs> to have that little refreshing little uh, change. So um, a lot, lot of stuff happening uh, this week, obviously. Uh, why don't we start, though, with some, some uh, actual good news uh, before we get into the more depressing stuff. Uh, let's, let's leave our readers, uh, leave our, our listeners on a, on a low note, kick them off the high note, uh, with the uh, fair, play, uh, fair, play, fair pay agreements uh, survival in the ILO, uh, the International Labour Organization. They were sort of challenged by, uh, by New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand business sector, uh, business NZ, uh, uh, they, they took them to the ILO claiming that it was uh, sort of, uh, that they would serve the kind of violation of wider workers' rights. So I guess by, by, I think their contention was by forcing workers to bargain, that was, you know, a, a, a terrible evil against workers, and so it had to be stopped. Uh, and the ILO basically said, "No, this, this, this is good. This is actually great." And it's actually New Zealand's uh, uh, labor rules are actually really uh, not good, and 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 missing so many uh, fundamental things that you know that exist in Europe. So actually, this is like a, a brilliant corrective. Uh, so I don't know what, what were you guys' thoughts about uh, upon hearing this? Yeah, I mean, pretty pretty predictable, but good to see how kind of um, how clear it was. And yeah, I mean, it's just what we've been talking about the last couple of times we've mentioned this, the, it was entirely predictable that it would get kind of laughed at when, once it got to that level. And the fact that it was ginned up to the point that it was where we had media here pretty uncritically repeating the lines from Business NZ in a very like, he said, he said kind of way uh, with Michael Wood speaking for the um, for the EPA proposals versus Kirk Hope. And it's like, these are the two kind of reasonable opinions you can have, right? In a very like centrist media performative kind of way. Um, and the fact that it got to the ILO and just like that immediately was like, well, no, this is stupid. Uh, please leave. <laughs> kind, of <approach. laughs> kind of, I think should make people here stop and consider that maybe um, that's not the best way to like look at things, right? And taking the, taking the word of a massively uh, compromised organization whose entire purpose is to speak for a very, very tiny segment of big business in New Zealand um, might not be a great place to start journalism. You know, I think there's a media point to be made as well as the, as well as the funny current affairs, affairs one. Yeah. I haven't seen the kind of uh, the outcome of it reported yet. I just saw a press release from the government, which was um, yeah, quite uh, like a, a little bit like snarky, which, which was um, really nice to see because normally the government is doing everything they can to grovel up to big business. Um, but yeah, the kind of tone of the press release from, from Michael Wood was, um, yeah, re really good to see. But it's going to be interesting to see how the media report it, like you say, Philip, and if they're going to actually, you know, provide some analysis on it rather than just that kind of back and forth, you know, crap that we've seen, really. Yeah, I think Michael Wood's earned a few um, I told you so's 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. If anyone has, he should he should be allowed to do a round of the media saying, "I told you." This is literally what I was saying. <laughs> that was immediately. Confused. I do like. I, I do find it funny the idea that uh, you know I don't know how much they they or how like genuinely they thought this was going to be the the Trump card to to like you know strike a blow against the the fair pay agreements, um, but. Uh, I do like the idea that they were like, oh yeah, like, oh, this is going to be so good. We take it to the ILO and then we have the ILO, you know, the people who are, who represent worker interests worldwide. And they say that this is a bad idea. That's, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be rich. And then of course they, they, they do it. And it's like, oh no, this is, this is great. This is exactly what, <laughs> what should be happening. And I like, I feel like they wouldn't have done that if they didn't think that there was some chance of it happening, because why would you bring that um, embarrassment to yourself? Because I feel like this is kind of a big embarrassing defeat for them. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I really want to know what the thought process was here for, from, from the, the, the business executive side. Like what were they actually thinking? I think it's kind of just a cynical media play, right? Like they're, you know, they, they tried to manufacture that story that it was illegal in some way um, and the ILO were going to investigate and, you know, try to drum up the same. And of course the media, like, you know, numerous mainstream media outlets kind of complying with their messaging. Um, and I mean, I don't know, like the cynic in me thinks that, you know, maybe they'll just do a good job of like brushing this kind of result aside uh, and, you know, some of the damage of them putting out some of those messages in the media has already been done, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you guys are less cynical than me, but... No, no, I'm exactly cynical. <laughs> um, I think it's a, it's just a comms question about how well they manage the dead cat, right? It's like they must have known that on the substance of it, they weren't going to get um, a, a ruling that would look great. Maybe hope, they probably didn't expect it to be as kind of clear as this. Um, I'd, I'd hope. <laughs> but um, unless they were just completely going for wasting everybody's time. But... I think the maybe the mistake that Kirk Hope made was doubling down to the extent that he did, right? There was a, a moment there where they went back to him and said, oh, it looks like you've misrepresented this uh, list of most grievous labor, blah, blah, things he retitled, right? The original kind of indignity that led all this off. Um, and he could have said, well, you know, on the one hand, okay, that's not what it was called, but we were trying to represent that it, you know, uh, contradicts our democratic right to be exploited or however he would frame that, right? Um, but he didn't, he, he really doubled down and was like, no, we do think it's this really serious thing. And even the fact that it's being investigated means that blah, blah, blah. So yeah, any, any journalist kind of worth their salt who had that conversation with them should now go back and say, well, hang on, if you thought it was such a grievous thing, why does everyone in the world in this ILO contingent think that that's rubbish? Like, why did you bother bringing this case? Um, so we'll see, I guess we'll see if it paid off, right? It depends how it gets reacted to. Yeah, you're right. It, it does depend a lot on the on the on the media coverage and, and how they choose to frame it. Uh, one more serious point for me is I think this does once more show uh, in New Zealand we have this image uh, of ourselves as being very very progressive and, and you know kind of almost a, a Scandinavia in, in the South Pacific. Uh, and I think this kind of reminds me of you know maybe maybe that's where the, the public is, but certainly some of our um, you know, some of our institutions, you know, whether with the governmental institutions or the media, uh, are, are far uh, to the right, or at least far <laughs> uh, out of uh, the mainstream if you compare it to, to the rest of the world, where this, well, as you said, this was very quickly dispensed with. It wasn't even really a, a point of controversy. And people were saying, actually, you know, if this is, this is, if anything, kind of um, 
it's, it's, it should have happened a lot earlier. Uh, and yet, of course, the way this, this has been portrayed in, in the New Zealand uh, media and, and the political discourse in New Zealand, it's this very controversial, potentially a very extreme thing that the government is doing. You know, the power is being handed to, to, to workers and all this kind of thing. So that really should make us think about, you know, uh, look outside of just the narrow bounds of New Zealand discourse and, and, and try and think of a little slightly more broader uh, way when we look at these issues. Um, so that was good. That was that was a good thing that happened. Uh, that that's very optimistic. Uh, I guess what what do we what do we, uh, uh, we want to tackle next? I mean, uh, I suppose we should go with the uh, the news about uh, the uh, Hiwaka Ikanoa uh, 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 plan, uh, which uh, seems to be um, just basically a disaster that, that where we've handed um, probably the most consequential. Uh, uh, decision and, and most consequential policy uh, in terms of New Zealand's future over to uh, corporate uh, uh, hands to essentially give themselves an out. Uh, do either of you guys want to give us a, a bit of a summary of what happened there and what the issue is? Yeah, yeah, sure. I can um, pick that up. So, yeah, like you say, Bronco, um, you know, this, this plan on agricultural emissions has been in the works for a couple of years now. So back in 2019, um the the labor green government so that was the well, the previous um labor green government alongside uh, new zealand first they announced um how agricultural emissions are going to be priced um going forward and this is kind of actually it's in response to we, we should go back for some uh back further for some more context in the 2017 uh, labor and new zealand first coalition agreement so not even the agreement with the greens um, Labour and New Zealand first agreed to bring our agricultural emissions into the ETS um, at 95% discount. So heavily subsidised, obviously, but nevertheless, I think a significant kind of step. Um, and, you know, bearing in mind that New Zealand first has you know, a large rural kind of regional constituency, they were trying to, um, you know, represent that constituency. And so this was kind of viewed as, you know, um, facing the inevitable, but at, at a large kind of, uh, subsidy and, and discount for the agricultural sector. But anyway, um, they ended up doing much better than that because this Hiwaka Ekanoa plan, like you said, Branko, is um, just delaying uh, even further um, the sector actually paying anything. And that's that's exactly what it's turned out to be for the last two years. So what, what the plan is essentially is um, a group of ag agricultural sector representatives and like the worst of the worst, you know, Federated Farmers, Beef and Lamb New Zealand, Fonterra, like all these, uh, you know, giants, corporate giants, essentially um, deciding how they're going to regulate their own emissions. Um, and so they've got together and put together this plan. Uh, and what the plan is, is uh, Mark Dalder's done some really great reporting on this. So the, the pricing is only going to reduce uh, emissions, um, methane emissions from agriculture by about 0.8%. Um, so we need to reduce um, methane emissions by 10% by 2030, uh, according to the Zero Carbon Act targets. And even that, when that was brought out, like I have to keep reminding myself, was already insufficient and widely panned as not being you know, enough to kind of meet the global challenge of um, climate change. Uh, so yeah, the, these, you know, this agricultural emissions pricing is really going to do very little to, um, to reduce emissions substantially. And the sector are kind of widely leaning on other regulations like the freshwater reforms, um, and regulations in the or initiatives in the waste sector to bring down biological methane emissions. Um, so, so that was it was kind of 
you know, when this was announced this week, uh, this report was like widely panned um, by, you know, environmental activists. Um, and, you know, anyone kind of following this kind of stuff really. Um, but the one thing that I think is kind of the most egregious about it, about the proposal is that the, the group, the Hawaka Ekanoa group, which is you know, largely made up of those corporate representatives, um, as I said before, have proposed that uh, the levies, so the amount of taxes that they're going to pay on these emissions and the way that they're going to be audited um, is also going to be decided by a board made up of their representatives. So they're essentially entrenching the complete capture um, of you know, this area of government regulation um, by, by these corporate interests. So yeah, I guess um, the complete opposite to a good news story um, that we that we went to from from the start. But I don't know. It's it's all it's all very um, kind of sadly predictable, but yeah, really kind of cynical. And um, I mean, it's, it's going to be it's it's going to be really interesting to see what um, the political response to it is. To be honest, by the government, because this is going to be recommended to cabinet now by this group, um, and you know, if they accept it, which I think that they will. I mean, what are they? The, the only other alternative is for them to bring agriculture into the ETS, um, which will be, you know, um, it, there'll, there'll be massive like pushback to that from the um, agricultural sector. Um, so, so they're kind of kind of in, in a bit of a bind here, really, uh, between you know the the climate <laughs> um, and what the agricultural sector wants, and continued massive subsidies and political favors. So, yeah, not great news. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, in, in a couple of ways, it's a continuation of what we've seen in this area, right? Um, Paul was talking about how this wouldn't meet the standards they set themselves, which, which wouldn't meet the standards we already knew were required, right? And to go back a step even further than that, there was skepticism around the targets that have been set at an international level being harsh enough. So there are sort of three different levels of insufficiency here that is, is quite hard to bear in mind each time a new one comes out, right? So this, this plan doesn't meet our commitments that we set ourselves, which don't meet our previous commitments that we made ourselves, which don't meet our international obligations, which probably don't meet the standard of the actual planetary crisis that we're talking about. And it's all of those get sort of folded in each time there's a new one of these. This is kind of part of the nature of a really like technocratic target-based solution to these problems, right? Is that whenever we say X is enough, uh, then it allows the industry to go, well, X minus one is pretty good though. And then we've had like four iterations of that, right? Even just recently in our political history. And that shows just kind of, I suppose, how, how easy it is to work with these Overton windows for the industry that do this professionally, right? They've done this amazingly well during a government that came in promising a lot on climate change. No, no specifics, obviously, but promising a lot in 2017. And then 2020, full, full Labour government, they could do whatever they want. And what they wanted to do was consult with the sector for most of their term uh, and not do anything. So now it's really, it'll be really interesting. Like Paul says, what do they choose? They kind of made this rod for their own backs. So are they going to go with it or throw it back in their faces? Yeah, this is why, you know, I, I am a little cynical when I uh, watch, you know, the prime minister go on like the late show with Stephen Colbert or, you know, wherever and, and talk about, the, the, the gun control issue because look yeah I'm, I'm proud that New Zealand has a functional enough political system and and isn't so uh, captured by extremists that we can you know pass common sense gun laws when there's a, a horrific shooting 
Um, but that that lobby is not does not have any real influence in New Zealand. The the, the, the lobby that does uh, that's immensely powerful in New Zealand is of course the yeah the the, the, the corporate agriculture lobby, and. This government and every other government before it has never shown any appetite or ability to stand up to it. Um, I mean, yeah, they, they went for a partnership model and we're seeing the results of, of what happens when you have a partnership. Uh, unfortunately, that does not actually work to, to fix the, the problem at hand. You, you, you can't partner with, with the people who are causing the problem. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it is quite dispiriting. And the other thing I, I think that's, it's worth noting about this is that part of the rationale seems to be that you pay, uh, you know, th these companies will pay, uh, some amount of money for, for the, the, the tonnage of, of emissions that they're, that they're putting out. And then that money will be invested into R and D for cutting emissions down the line. So this is basically the same thing that we're seeing. Uh, in the United States and, and other countries, uh, basically just kicking the can down the road and investing all of our hope to, to tackling this this crisis. The, you know, the, the, the biggest crisis danger uh, that that our species has ever faced on, on in, in our entire history. We're basing it all on a, a hope that somewhere down the line, maybe in five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, we'll just come up with some sort of miracle technology that will mean that we don't have to do anything different. We don't have to change anything and it will just solve everything. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastical fairy tale, you know, nonsense story that, that we're being fed. And the crazy thing about it is that if, if you have the position that we have, that's considered unserious. The serious position in our current politics is to believe in this fantasy land uh, storyline that that I've just outlined. That we will just somehow come up with some marvelous uh, technology that doesn't exist that will solve everything. This is the top, topsy turvy world that we have uh, sort of put ourselves in, in in our current politics. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And you know, even at that, if, even if that technology. Um, was to have a reasonable probability, right, of reducing emissions the way, you know, the amount that the um, Hawaka Economic Plan claims that it would. Um, it's still a hugely risky proposition, right? Like like you said, Bronco, we're dealing with, an, you know, uh, if not existential, like civilizational crisis, you know, um, that is going to have enormous repercussions. And, you know, obviously the argument that often comes out in New Zealand as over a small country and, you know, we can't do anything, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I think a really convincing counter to that is that the combined emissions of, you know, countries of the size of New Zealand or um, slightly bigger, you know, is, is a massive part of global emissions. And, you know, not even only that, but, you know, we like to pride ourselves on, you know, being a leader, a global leader in all these issues. Well, um, here's an opportunity, you know? Um, and the irony to that is obviously that uh, the government if they do uh, accept this plan, um, will claim that it's a world first in pricing agricultural emissions and, you know, we're world leading and blah, blah, blah. But really, we're just, you know, like you said, Bronco, we're world leading at kicking the can down the road and relying on these techno fixes that are incredibly dangerous and, yeah, um, and unfortunate. Yeah, and, and also, by the way, don't really work. I mean, uh, there's been a, a spate of kind of studies uh, looking at carbon capture technology that, that uh, it does not present a very good picture. I mean, there was, for instance, uh, this is a study, this was a, 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 a news story about a, a carbon capture machine that went up online in Iceland last year. And it, it, what it's able to do is it's able to suck out 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide out of the air every year, which uh, according to the US EPA, 
is the equivalent of uh, emissions from 870 cars. So that's that's where we're at right now. Uh, I you know I don't think I have to tell everyone that there's a lot more than 870 cars <laughs> in the world, uh, let alone in New Zealand. Uh, so you know we we got to hope that this technology somehow ramps up incredibly quickly uh, over the next you know 10 to 15 years. Um, or, you know, start thinking about how we can, you know, do other things to, to change the way society is ordered and structured, you know? Yeah, yeah. Really and I mean, don't, don't mistake this um, position for, like, being a Luddite either. I don't, I don't think investing in R&D is bad. We should have been doing this for decades. Um, and there are probably, like, techno fixes to a lot of these things. But applying any level of skepticism that we would for any other scientific problem to this, relying on that as a way to save the level of civilization that we're able to enjoy is really just setting ourselves up for failure right that's the that's the problem and there's a reason that the kind of people at the forefront of the tech will save us kind of movement is at people and the lyle lanley's here to sell us the, the monorail <laughs> that will you know pull our pull our emissions away and save us all in some kind of conveniently structured public private partnership with, that's funded by the government and profits go to you know plucky young um, investors that live in the cities and uh, wear suspenders. But yeah, there's this kind of, that's, that's why, right? That's why those are the people excited. There are, there are plenty of scientists working in this, in this kind of space, but from what I've seen, they aren't the ones mainly promoting this as something to be relied on. Like it'll, you can use technology to assist society to transform, not rely on it as the method for society to transform, right? It's a, it's a process issue rather than a, mm. a solution. Uh, yeah yeah i mean yeah absolutely we should be investing in technology and and hopefully we do uh i mean there is definitely uh innovations like that come in terms of, of carbon capture that that aren't necessarily to do with with you know even machines uh so it's to do with like geoengineering like plants that, that that like suck extra carbon dioxide from the air so there's lots of stuff that can happen but it's it's you know it's a little like Imagine if there was a forecast that there was a hurricane coming in a few months and, and it was going to do incredible devastation to whether it's New Zealand or, or you know, whatever, any country. Uh, and instead of going, oh, shit, we should probably prepare for this um, and, and, you know, do everything we possibly can to, to limit the danger, uh, limit the damage and, and get people out of harm's way. We were like, oh, well, why don't we just not do anything? And hopefully in like six months, we'll just come up with a machine that can suck hurricanes out of the out of the uh, atmosphere so. <laughs> <laughs> completely nonsensical um but this is kind of the, the logic that we're taking to this particular issue just before we move on i, I want to pick up on the politics of this um issue because like you know james shaw is green party co-leader he's, he's climate change minister um he was you know on the stage when this plan was announced in 2019 with with um you know jacinda and the agriculture lobby essentially and it's been a, it's been a gigantic failure um it's not going to reduce emissions anywhere near uh the level that we need to and i mean it's it's complete resignation territory for for him um it, you know especially as climate change minister if if as a minister in the government he's outside cabinet so he's not at the cabinet table but if cabinet suggests you know taking up even anything close to this uh, and not, you know, refusing to bring agriculture into the ETS like they have to immediately, um, then, you know, how how can he, as climate change minister, stay in that job? Like, how would you stay in a job where your job is to reduce emissions, right, of the of the country, and a sector which represents half of those emissions has, like, you know, used predatory delay tactics 
that you yourself advocated for, you know, several years ago, and which have proven to have done nothing, you know. Um, and I mean, if you want to resign as climate change minister, then the Greens need to, like, Green members need to actually, you know, remove him as co-leader because it's just it's just ridiculous. Well, his, yeah, his job would be to implement a policy that he says is is insufficient, right? Yeah. If that if that's what your job is exactly. as a minister, like you could be a spokesperson without being a minister, right? But if you're a minister, then on paper, what your role is is to enforce government policy to implement government policy hmm. and, and the ets is you know is flawed um it's a it's a market mechanism it's a neoliberal mechanism and it was retained by the junkie government after it got brought in in 2008 by at the, at the end of um the helen clark government um but given the current circumstances you know there's, there's a reason why the agriculture sector have refused like have pushed back on that substantially it's because it, you know to some degree it would make them pay for you know even like some some of their emissions you know even a very small fraction of their emissions um which are massive so it represents you know a, a threat to them um and that's why they've pushed back on it and but it's 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 there um it exists for other uh, emissions you know sectors that are causing carbon emissions um and so that remains the only like the current viable option to you know bring them into that and make them face some of their the cost of their pollution um, so, I mean, that's the only alternative really at the, right, right at the stage. Uh, and that's the one that the government has to do. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, you know, we're kind of facing an impossible scenario. And it's quite an intuitive kind of division, right? I mean, people, people talk about the rural urban divide at the last election, um, but what better way to, to make that felt than for farmers to get a 95% discount on the cost that everyone else is paying in their sectors, right? And then for that to be delayed on and on and on, it's easier and easier to write articles that are like, here's the thousands of dollars that other sectors have to pay to engage in a certain type of industrial activity, right? And farmers are in this special category. They get these kind of special privileged status because of, you know, the strength of the lobby that they have transparently. That's why they have it. Um, there's, no, there's no reason beyond that. We don't, we don't need all of these farms to, to feed the country, right? Much as they would like us to think that that's the case. Um, it, it's purely the strength of their very powerful lobby and it's, it's easier and easier to like make those cleavages um explicit in the media yeah well that as well um this time around which has been good to see uh yeah not, not great news uh but it's something to, to keep an eye on and i guess we'll see where that ends up i mean it does seem like it's getting quite a bit of flack so you know whether that actually eventuates into anything i don't know but uh uh moving on to more um Interesting news, I guess I'll, I'll say. Uh, we have, um, uh, I guess, certain survey results, polling results um, that that suggest quite a shift in the electoral fortunes of our two uh, major parties. So in this case, we're talking about, in particular, the uh, Ipsos issues monitor that, that came out uh, earlier this week uh, that showed uh, basically in a, in a list of issues um, that people kind of have as their top priorities. Uh, they ask people which party they, they trust most uh, on that issue. Uh, you know, back uh, a, a while back, uh, basically for everything going from, from housing and poverty to inflation, healthcare, climate change, everything. Uh, it was like all the way down. Um, but this is back in 2021. So this is when, when uh, Labour was still riding high. Obviously people had a lot of goodwill towards it uh, because of the, the, the COVID. Uh, response. Um, and actually, uh, just before I, I give you the reveal of what the 
what the survey says now. Um, I think worth noting how uh, governments that perceive as competent and able to deliver certain uh, material things to people, they get uh, rewarded by voters, uh, even if it doesn't really make a lot of sense. That you know, does does Labor's COVID uh, policy really translate to a, a great uh, approach to like law and order or drug and alcohol abuse or climate change, environmentalism, middle alone housing? No, of course not. But what people are really saying is, you know, I trust this particular party and this government to 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 you know steer us through whatever is happening. Okay, so that was the 2021 uh, survey. Now the one that was most recent came out and lo and behold, you have got uh, Labour's only trusted on, on two of those 10 uh, priorities. Meanwhile, National is most trusted on inflation, housing, petrol prices, crime slash law and order economy. Uh, I know that some of these are, categories are a little incoherent, but, but you know, just bear with us. Uh, and taxation. Uh, which is stunning because National has horrible policies in all of this. Uh, that would be absolutely worse for the average New Zealander uh, than, than even under Labour, which has not been great. Uh, Labour has just managed to hold on to healthcare, which is also stunning because um, <laughs> Labour's record on healthcare hasn't been that great either. Uh, but nonetheless, and they, they've managed to hang on to poverty, um, which I guess... That one also throws me for a loop, but you know, when you, I guess, I guess there's one thing that like voters will not give to national. They're like, no, 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 they're still the cold hearted bastards that want people to, to live in like cold houses and not be able to uh, feed their kids. So uh, pretty, pretty stunning turnaround. What is uh, your guys' take on, on uh, this reversal of fortunes? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you, Bronco. I think it's kind of like a reversion to some sense of, um, you know, normality, I guess. And we talked, you know, we talked about on the budget episode as well, how that kind of, it felt like a bit of a, you know, back to normal budget um, where people kind of look at the parties and, you know, maybe think about what they're kind of historically being, being trusted for, you know? Um, and that the sort of clean sweep of that, um, of the poll by Labour in 2021, I think probably more reflected, like you say, their, their mm. trust, um, that was in the goodwill from voters around the, the COVID response. Uh, and, and now like there's obviously changing, um, you know, changing political issues. Uh, now inflation and cost of living is, is at the top of that, um, at, at the, top, the top issue for voters. Um, and it was, it was third before behind housing and, and poverty and inequality. And poverty and inequality has dropped to seventh. And I think like that kind of shows, um, you know, yeah, the, just the kind of the changing um, issues that are on the tops of people's minds, right? Um, petrol prices has has rocketed from nowhere to number four, you know, and that's obviously it's just in response to like an everyday issue which people are seeing. And then even also this, I think I don't know exactly when this poll was taken, but it was probably after the um, twenty five cent uh, reduction in petrol prices that Labour brought in as well. Um, and so now national, even though they don't really, I mean, I don't, I don't know if they actually have announced any kind of policy on it, um, have somehow been trusted by voters as the best political option in this kind of space. Um, and same with climate change and environmental pollution. I think it's interesting that the Greens have kind of taken that back from Labour in this poll, but I think there's probably more Labour just being at the forefront of everyone's mind and being a, a trusted kind of hand um, at the top of government that that has, you know, they haven't certainly haven't done anything in my view to, um, you know, for them to kind of take over from the Greens who are, no, who are normally the, 
political party that people think of, you know, when obviously when um, issues of climate change and, you know, water quality and so on um, are being asked about. So, yeah, yeah, these things are vibes checks, right? I mean, I think um, PR people and pundits who, who try to compare these, uh, you know, intra within these different issues, they try to compare them to each other. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how it works for the same reasons as Brock was mm. saying and Paul was saying, like the, the reason that people ticked labor for who, who would do the best job on the price of housing last year, despite their very recent record at making the price of housing significantly worse, knowing they were doing it, continuing to do it, and then not fixing the problem, right? They were the ones with power. They were the ones causing this crisis in housing. And they were still voted as that was the most important issue to voters and also Labour would do the best job to address it. So I don't think you can really treat this as a serious, like considered um, response based on anything to do with policies or even what, what people would think those people would institute. It's a vibes check based on who's currently in power and what people think of how successful PR is. And yeah, I mean, the Greens coming back in climate change and environmental pollution, that's because Labour's going down. It's not because the Greens have released some recent thing in the last year that's massively changed people's perceptions of how well they'll do in that space. Um, and the same for, for National. I mean, the things that the things National is openly campaigning on the last couple of months has been like gangs, crime, law and order stuff, which is only marginally more important than it was to voters last year, according to this kind of ordering of issues, right? So that, that hasn't been a huge change. And they've been campaigning on free waters, which where's that? There's no kind of local government stuff there or like centralized supply of service or anything. That's, that's not what people are talking about. People are supporting National now because Labour's failing them on cost of living. And that gets to my other bugbear in these issues is that the way they're defined is, I think, inherently dishonest to say that there's a hard line between the cost of living and the price of housing, for example. Why does it cost so much to survive? Because our housing is so overpriced. Well, what, what does a good economy look like for most people? Lower cost of living, higher, higher incomes, even inflation as like an academic kind of tool doesn't mean that much to most people if your cost of living is survivable right if you're earning a lot more this year and inflation's gone up most people we've seen overseas will not say that inflation's a huge problem for them because they know that their their cost of living relatively is still okay no one cares about inflation no one cares about the economy but everybody cares about things that are like kitchen table issues to them right when it actually meets your life that's that's when it makes a difference so this kind of conflation of inflation with cost of living is, is purely is saying that like individuals experiences are downstream from the decisions of the Reserve Bank of the, the technocrats of Treasury right it's it's quite a political politically loaded way of kind of phrasing this issue and it's way too easy to buy into it and be like oh the, the way to fix this problem is to address you know what national would love you to say that's like oh spending right that's the that's the problem we need to spend less money because <laughs> there was another there was another uh survey saying what do most people think is causing uh the most inflation right there was uh global economic issues which again what does that mean like was the top one <laughs> and then there was covid and there was and i think government spending was like 60 something percent so more people thought those other things were contributing than government spending but still most people think that government spending is contributing in some way to inflation um mm. but that's because they're winning the narrative right it's a vibes check based on mm. how successful the narrative has been there aren't two like coherent positions in front of you and you have to pick one 
Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's the right way to read this. Uh, and not just even this survey. There's a, there's a lot of polls that are, as you say, uh, better read as vibe checks, not to be taken completely literally or even, you know, thinking that this is the exact number of people who support one thing or another, but rather looking at the shifts over time and, and, and trying to discern from that uh, what the kind of mood of the public is. Um, and, and this is not really great for Labour. I mean, it does kind of, uh, I, I feel like I've said this about seven times uh, before uh, in, in our various episodes, but um, it, it, it does go back to what we have been saying all along, which was, you know, the COVID response, very good for a while. Uh, but sooner or later, they're going to make a bunch of mistakes. And also people sooner or later will go, well, okay, COVID's not as much of an issue anymore now as all these other things. What have you done for me lately? What have you done on those things? You know, it's, you can't just say, we're going to run the country until there's the, uh, as long as the pandemic crisis is happening. And then when that stops being a thing, uh, you're on your own. Uh, now people expect you to keep governing. And so Labour should have, I think, probably you guys think the same, should have used its uh, historic mandate to aggressively tackle all these other uh, slow burning problems uh, that they've been kind of left to fester in New Zealand for, for well over, well, decades, but certainly uh, the, the last decade. Uh, and they didn't. They took a conservative option, thinking that it would save them support because they wouldn't do anything too radical. They wouldn't upset the, uh, the, the kind of uh, national voting bloc. And what they get for it, they, they've ended up kind of losing a bunch of support anyway. It didn't make a difference um, because it turns out that's not really how this works. But okay, uh, but that that's not a great sign for Labour. Um, I guess let's move on to a, the to the the piece de resistance, the the climax of our of our uh, episode today, which is the uh, the recent uh, Radio New Zealand um, profile uh, of Christopher Luxon. Uh, profile, I don't know what, what uh, you know, maybe there's other other terms. There's a very soft focus, glowing kind of um, thing, which which to be fair, it's not, that's not unique to Luxon. That's, you know, every politician gets their go at having this kind of like uh, soft media style um, uh, uh, portrayal that kind of humanizes them and, and, and makes them seem like good people. But I, I wasn't as on top of, you know, what the exact response or reaction to this was uh, uh, from, I guess, the public, or at least the, the kind of Twitter using public in, in New Zealand. I mean, what, what was your sense of how this was uh, received, uh, this particular profile from Guyanese? Well, um, if, if you live on Twitter, I mean, it just got completely ratioed. Um, it, was, it was quite it was quite funny to watch actually because I mean the headline was something like yeah like like you said it was some fluffy stuff um, about who he is but then it also had impeccable climate um, or impeccable environmental credentials and you know um, advocate for um, you know the rights of uh, rainbow people and you know all these other things you know that people were just like what the fuck like where's this where's this come from and in terms of um, the uh, environment, his environmental credentials that seemed to be based um, on the opinions of one person who was on the board of Air New Zealand with him. Um, you know, when they were putting in some kind of I don't know sustainable business policy or some shit like that. You know, so it's like <laughs> it's just completely like I mean, you know, I agree with you, Bronco, that every politician, you know, from typically you know across the spectrum, does get this type of treatment by the mainstream media in terms of profiles and like soft soft media and that but there's a there's a difference between that and like completely like evidence-free claims you know about their credentials in certain spaces and you don't have to look far to find 
you know and i mean like it was, it was bizarre because i watched the the 10 minute um interview i mean i'm assuming it was pretty heavily edited but the interview that guy nesman did with um christopher luxon and not once in that interview did they actually ask him or did guy and ask him and we might be edited out but like about what his plans were for the environment you know and surely if you're going to put that in like the headline you know or the byline there should be something about what they're actually proposing to do and of course you know every time he's actually been asked in other you know media stories about how he would respond to what we we're talking about before in terms of agricultural emissions or whatever he's like even worse than like labor you know on those issues so yeah i mean i don't know i'm ranting a little bit now but the i think the response was kind of it got what it deserved on twitter at least um but it's going to be interesting to see what the kind of broader response is i don't know what do you what do you reckon for yeah yeah exactly i i think um it's easy to be a bit kind of short-sighted when these kind of hack job feeling articles come out and um to kind of put your own uh prejudices I suppose to the back of your mind a bit I mean John Key was better at these at getting these things than the Labour opposition for consecutive terms and that played a big part in his winning um less kind of politically clued up voters um and then Jacinda was better at it than Bill English and that played a big part in the Jacinda mania um election and she's remained good at it so I mean she was better at it than Judith Collins at the last election it's a feature of our increasingly presidential um political seen unfortunately that our politicians have figured out that this kind of soft media is a big vote winner and you know country calendar and women's day is where the votes are there's no point talking like preaching to the converted um yeah so like i I don't begrudge the fact that politicians will use the media landscape um how they want but yeah i think you need some some type of integrity once you're making claims about positions and policies and who's endorsing someone uh, it's beyond the pale to just make a claim like uh, Christopher Luxon uh, has any any kind of kind of uh, leg to stand on when it comes to rainbow rights or environmentalism in particular. Neither of which he has a great reputation on. You know, there, there'd be other things I imagine that they could talk about um, that would be okay. This this person could appeal to swing voters. They could talk about his more like representative representation type initiatives that he brought in at RNZ. Um, his kind of boardroom feminism achievements um, in that kind of arena, in a kind of uh, John Key kind of way. Like he's he's basically John Key, but but worse when it comes to policies, right? When he starts talking about things, like he's no he's no John Key because the smart thing that John Key did in his quote unquote reinvention of the National Party was some explicit changes, like both in personnel and and in policy, and in papering over the fundamental kind of technocratic right-wing managerial nature of the party with, uh, you know, going to, again, close, like talking to poor people, uh, performing, like listening to poor people and understanding their concerns. But Luxon's done the, you know, the limo stunt. He's wearing suits all the time. There's none of that. He's performing to big boardrooms full of um, rural racists about three waters. That's his kind of shtick at the moment and talking about (laughs) gangs. Like that's not reforming the National Party. Like Judith Collins wouldn't have done anything different for the last three months, right? It's it's bizarre timing and just really transparent that that's that's not who he is. It seems like a massive swing and a miss. I, I suspect that there's uh, quite a bit of uh, pressure, uh, self-imposed pressure within RNZ to to um, 
to appear even handed and to not appear like the kind of like radical lefty part of the news, which is of course ridiculous because, you know, like, I mean, I, I, I read and listen to RNZ, but the idea that it's any sort of like mouthpiece for, for radical stuff is, is of course laughable. But I think that is kind of their, their culture. And I feel like that probably does motivate um, some of this kind of thing. I did find quite a few interesting things, uh, perhaps unwittingly, uh, uh, kind of kind of revealing and interesting uh, in, in this interview. I mean, about Lexan, one of which was he talks about how multinationals are a force uh, for good, and he, and he he refers back to his time at Unilever, uh, and the way, uh, at least in, in the article that that he wrote afterwards, uh, the, the way that Espinosa kind of frames this as like you know, well, depending on what side of the spectrum you're on. You're, you know, if you're if you're a lefty, then you know you're gonna think this is the worst thing in the world because multinationals are just inherently evil and blah blah blah. blah. And then if you're, you know, a, a, on the more kind of national side on the right, you're gonna think it's great because you think business is like the driving engine of of society and progress and blah blah blah. Um, but it doesn't actually talk about what Unilever's record is. And we, we've, uh, I think, mentioned this on the podcast before. But if you actually look it up, Unilever was one of these companies that. Uh, made a, a great, uh, a lot of noise about how environmentally conscious and sustainable it was and all this stuff, how they were changing their supply chains and practices to make sure that they, you know, that the people were getting paid properly and that there wasn't environmental devastation. But the thing is, once you actually look past just these reports that they put out every, you know, year or so that kind of talked about all these great things, um, the reality is that they hadn't actually done that much. To, to change some of the, the terrible practices that they've been doing in the years before. It was, you know, just a classic case of greenwashing. I'm not saying Luxon is responsible for that personally, but if he's going to hold up Unilever, which he, he does in this interview, as kind of an example of this is why business is kind of the, the, the engine of progress. Uh, because, you know, I worked at this very um, uh, progressive company, this progressive multinational uh, <laughs> oxymoron there. Uh, uh, you you should maybe have a look at what its actual record is because it's it's very very underwhelming uh, you know to put it conservatively uh, compared to to what they're saying there. And the other thing was that Luxon says something. He does the classic Steven Pinker thing, where he says, "Well, uh, you know, you look at uh, the free market, and it's actually been really great." You know, the the classic thing people say: look at the poverty statistics. Lots of people have been raised from poverty. Yada yada yada. Um, that's nonsense. Uh, there was actually a, a in 2020, a, a UN special rapporteur on poverty, uh, the final report of the guy who, who was um, holding that position at the time. And he looked at these claims by Pinker and other people and, and, and actually properly analyzed it. And, and he found basically really that's just a product of kind of uh, playing with the numbers, playing with the statistics. Basically, the, the uh, poverty measure that, that is used by the World Bank is so low that uh, if you manage, I think it's $1.90 per day, if you get over it, you're out of poverty. But in reality, you're not. That poverty rate is way, way, that poverty measure rather is way lower than even national poverty rates for a whole host of countries, um, where if you look at those, it's gotten much worse. And then we, the only reason uh, that the poverty rate has, has kind of gotten lower is mostly because of China. Which of course is, you know, uh, lots of criticisms about the Chinese system, but it's not really a free market uh, system. Not at least not the kind that that Luxon uh, would uh, want to, you know, impose. So, you know, I, I, to your point, 
this is the kind of thing that if you want to be a, a, a journalist, and Gary Espinosa has done a lot of great interviews over the years, but this is the kind of thing you've got to challenge people on. You can't just sort of give, you know, give them a few softballs and, and, and sort of, you know, uh, ask them some interesting questions and, and go home. I mean, you've got to actually challenge people. Uh, and, and it does seem like there wasn't really that much interest in doing that in this interview. Mm. Yeah, totally. There's also one other interesting thing that he said uh, when it came to like inequality and like you were talking about the free market creating, uh, you know, creating wealth and so on. Um, and, and he got asked, you know, whether he wants to reduce inequality. And of course he says yes, but then he, he differentiated between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity. Um, and it was very interesting because he, he was like, oh no, well, I acknowledge that when, you know, we're not going to see equality of outcome, but in fact, if we just have equality of opportunity, that's kind of what we're aiming for. But the whole theory behind trickle down is that if you give people equality of opportunity, you know, it's like self-made person mythology and that will result in an equality of you know, outcomes. Right. But he's kind of seems to be admitting there that no, actually that's not really how the system works. So I found that quite funny and revealing. Yeah. Even his kind of comms lines that he's, he's tried to, to pick up from like the kind of early key era, he's just not very good at them. Like he can't maintain the same line for very long. <laughs> There was the question about, um, do you want to do tax cuts for the rich? And he said, no, straight away. And then within one minute had said, yes, tax cuts for the rich are good because they generate growth. <laughs> and then Ben was like, so that's trickle down, right? You do, do you think trickle down is good? And he said, no, no, no. And then said, okay, so why, what's the economic rationale for cutting taxes to the rich? And he said, oh, you know, and then just blah, 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 the explanation that trickled down, you know, because <laughs> they'll generate equality, <laughs> needs to be part of society, they'll generate growth, and that needs to be part of a society that rewards hard work and go-getters and strivers and guy and So, like, that's, that's what trickle-down economics is, though, Chris. Like, <laughs> you, can't, you can't have it both ways every time. But he absolutely can. Like, the National Party is just a branding exercise, right? It doesn't matter what he's saying, really. <laughs> he can say both yeah. things, and people will take... As long as he's believable, people will continue to take the bits they like and not take the bits they don't like. Mm. So I guess we'll see yeah. as this as we get through the year. But I mean, he's polling well, right? It's not putting people off that he doesn't have positions. Myself. Yeah, which I, I mean is I, I think clearly, and I'm sure you guys would agree to do with the the quality of the of the opposition, or at least the quality of, of the government that he's in, is in opposition to. Yeah, I mean the the irony of all that is that of course it's the exact opposite. You know, the policies that he wants do the opposite of rewarding hard hard working people. They, they, they actually make it way worse for people who work hard and they make it way easier for people who basically uh, earn wealth just by sitting on, on certain assets uh, and, and pre-existing you know, wealth that they've built up over the years. Uh, th there, is, there was a funny moment where he, he gets angry because of people uh, making fun of his religion or whatever, or like people talking about or criticizing his faith and stuff, um, which like, yeah, that's fair enough, I guess. But it's like, no one, I don't think, cares really about his, no one cares what God he believes in. I think that the bigger problem is that he, his faith in, in the free market and like the, the idiotic trickle down economics, all of this stuff. That's really the stuff that, that people are angry about, or at least should be angry about. But of course, it's a, it's a useful thing to, to I guess, um, divert attention away from, from that stuff. You know, the really objectionable stuff he believes and, and to turn it on to, uh, you know, his faith and to say, yeah, this is why people uh, aren't happy with me. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if he, if he was an evangelical who uh, didn't also say things like uh, abortion is murder, 
and uh, quite like kind of extreme um, socially conservative positions that are pretty out of fashion in New Zealand. I mean, especially in the political class, right? There are plenty of people who think those things, but if you're a politician, you're going to get grilled on that stuff because our gallery journos are disproportionately progressive liberals. That's what they, it's easier for them to say they care about that stuff and to write stories about that stuff than, as you say, his other also kind of pernicious set of um, dogmas about belief in the unfettered free market saving people and this kind of um, discredited trickle down position that he won't even admit that he believes in himself. Mm. But yeah, I mean, this is another bugbear of mine that I bring up sometimes that it's it's easier for the, the media class to, um, I guess like the punditocracy to attack individuals who have um, dangerous, toxic, disastrous beliefs when it's, when it's put out in a way that attacks uh, a minority based on identity, right? Rather than a minority based on wealth or ability to look after yourself, resources, right? So if someone says something awfully racist, homophobic, uh, queerphobic in, in some, some way, right? That's correctly regarded as disgusting. But if someone says something, the implication of which would mean the death or, you know, pouring social circumstances for people already at the bottom of the economic scrap heap, that's regarded as something you can kind of discuss in polite society um, across cigars and whiskeys um, with, a, with a journalist and say, well, that's interesting that you think that. Um, I personally don't believe that. <laughs> it's, you know, fair enough that you would think that, which as, as you said before, you know, multinationals are good. That's something we can just have like a polite conversation about the, the outcomes of the, or the benefits of this massive kind of global hegemon accruing capital in one place and sucking it out of developing parts of the world, that's fine. We can talk about that, right? That's not a kind of religious question to, to be uh, cancelled over. No, for sure. And, and to be clear, you know, I, I don't think any of his socially conservative uh, beliefs have anything to do with, with religion. Uh, you know, that's a very convenient, uh, I think, mask for, I think, just having reactionary backwards views and a whole bunch of things. Uh, not to not to revive the kind of you know uh, 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 Richard Dawkins style atheist discourse of the, yeah. of the 2000s or something here, but you know I'd be I'd be happy to go through the Bible and find you know let's let's see how many passages there are that that Luxon does not uh, abide by you know or you know let's have a look at what the Bible says about you know poor people and and the rich and uh, how they you know th that the the imbalance in society and 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 what should be done about that I, it seems like Luxon's not really uh, you know hasn't hasn't gone to that bit of the Bible the bits of Leviticus that endorse um, a, a strong private sector and you know efficient <laughs> supply lines for deodorant that's the bit he gets passionate about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's you know, religion is people, people uh, uh, have fixed beliefs, I think, that, that they just have, and then they'll usually kind of slot that into their religious beliefs. So I think that's the case with, with Luxon, uh, which, of course, it makes it very convenient to, to talk about, you know, how he's being persecuted or whatever uh, for, for his religious beliefs, when, of course, yeah, he's just being criticized for having uh, backwards views. So basically, uh, the right's going to work. <laughs> The right's going to win, <laughs> and there's lots of stuff the left could have done to stop them and decided not to. Um, I mean, yeah. the only like looking forward to next year, right? If we're looking at the polls moving, uh, it's all going the wrong way for Labour and for the Greens, um, and it's all going the right way for National and Act was sort of managing to hang on reasonably well. So yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely possible that Grant Robertson could pull something out of the bag at the 
uh, budget next year by spending a whole bunch of money and smartly targeting a minority that could swing back to them. We were talking about this on the budget episode, but I think it's looking increasingly unlikely as we see their approach to everything else. They're just unwilling to make the kind of risks that I think that would take. Mm. Well, and if they don't, you know, don't, don't let them say that they couldn't have done anything, that this was just yeah. inevitable. As, as Philip says, it, it was very uh, easily avoidable. It'll be the voters' fault, probably. Yeah, <laughs> it always is. We are the worst, uh, the, the public. We, um, well, uh, yet another sunny end to another <laughs> one of 200 episode. Uh, I want to thank both of my co-hosts here, uh, Paul Callum, Philip Nasted, for, for joining me on this exploration of the, the week in politics in New Zealand. Um, and of course, uh, if you liked what you heard, if you want other people to hear what we've been talking about, if you want to expose, you know, members of your family, friends, whoever, co-workers, maybe even your employer, uh, to some of the stuff we're saying, share this, uh, subscribe, uh, you know, throw us a couple of bucks if you can uh, spare it. Uh, all of that helps to, to, to keep us going and to keep this stuff, um, you know, beaming into uh, your, your headphones uh, and in some parts of the country into your uh, radio. So uh, I want to uh, thank the listeners. Thank you guys. And uh, we will catch you in another, uh, well, next week. Oh